This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, I'm Noel Lim on Spotlight. Today we talk about Brexit. They want to delay Brexit yet again. This government will not delay Brexit any further. After an intense Saturday session in the House of Commons and as scores of anti-Brexit protesters gathered in London, members of Parliament withheld approval for Boris Johnson's deal until the Withdrawal Agreement Bill is passed. The kingmakers of the Brexit deal have been the 10 MPs from Northern Ireland's party, the Democratic Unionist Party or DUP. Why is Northern Ireland, the smallest country in the UK, holding up Brexit? What are the likely outcomes as we head towards the 31st October deadline? How do the British feel about Brexit? Would UK still be a good place to invest in? We demystify Brexit in today's episode of Spotlight. The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 16,141,241. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 17,410,742. This means that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. The UK has been in political chaos since 23rd June 2016, when 52% of the electorate, mostly in England, voted for the UK to leave the EU single market. Much of the Brexit negotiation disagreements have been on how to treat and tax goods that are moved between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, that shares the border with the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the EU after Brexit. A lot of trade takes place between these two regions and there are currently no need for border checks. Mark Langhammer, a senior trade unionist at the National Education Union, describes how integrated the economies are. Guinness would be brewed in Dublin and bottled in, in the north. If you look at Coca-Cola, the, the Coca-Cola concentrate is developed in Ballina in County Mayo, which is in the south of Ireland, but it is produced and bottled in Lisburn in, in the north of Ireland. Uh, if you look at something like Bailey's Irish Cream, which most of which is made for the export market, interestingly, they get their dairy produce from Lackpatrick, which is a cooperation or a cooperative of farmers from both sides of the border. So they produce uh, milk concentrate, milk powder, milk itself and cream. Then 30% of that is produced in Dublin and the other 70% in the north. In fact, they, they reckon that a bottle of Bailey's crosses the border seven or eight times before it, it reaches the shelves. So if you add tariffs seven or eight times, it just makes it impossible. After the UK leaves the EU, an arrangement is necessary to prevent any tax arbitrage while ensuring goods can be registered and cleared quickly. Former Prime Minister Theresa May had proposed for an Irish backstop, a border without customs between the regions until the UK and EU agree on alternative arrangements in the future. All parties had agreed that there will be no physical border because the presence of any police between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland could trigger all conflicts the Troubles. May's deal, however, was rejected three times in the House of Commons and that finally led her to resign in June this year. I believe it was right to persevere, even when the odds against success seemed high. But it is now clear to me that it is in the best interests of the country for a new Prime Minister to lead that effort. So I am today announcing that I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday the 7th of June. MPs who had opposed her deal fear a backstop even with compromises traps UK in the EU customs union and prevents it from striking its own trade deals. 
Johnson's original deal was to do remote checks using technology, like what is done between Norway and Sweden, but this model would still require some border checks. Finally, his deal is to keep Northern Ireland in the UK Customs Territory and place an EU-UK Customs border at the Irish Sea. This means that UK Customs will check the goods at British ports before they enter Northern Ireland Territory, and EU tariffs shall apply if the goods ultimately land in an EU single market, for example, the Republic of Ireland. But DUP is against having this border between Northern Ireland and the Great Britain, even if it is a regulatory one. Dagmar Sheik, Professor of Law at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland, says the sticking point is about British identity. There are controls. Northern Ireland will be under different legal regimes than, than Great Britain, and that is for them a question of identity. It is not necessarily looked at with objective economic interests, its personal identities, but we have to take identity seriously. Some of the unionist community, not all of them, yeah, there are other parts as well, but some of the unionist community represented by the DUP have a aversion on the basis of their personal identity to be treated differently from, the, from GB. Their solution is that um, the Northern Ireland leaves the EU at the same terms as, the, as Great Britain, and that then means they have the border on the island of Ireland, between south and north and south. But the DOP in their official statement states, well, this wouldn't result in a border. It is just propaganda, but it would result in a border because the EU needs to protect the internal market. Despite DUP's misgivings, there are advantages to Johnson's deal. And I think uh, the advantage of the withdrawal agreement, even in its amputated form, is that there is still a joint committee and a subcommittee for the joint committee supervising this protocol island, Northern Ireland. They still have the opportunity and the option to propose changes, and those changes could then in include that Northern Ireland, with some time, grows into participating in more parts of the internal market. So in that way, the withdrawal agreement is not the worst option. It's a dynamic deal, and so it can develop in favour of Northern Ireland. Without DUP, Johnson might successfully get his deal passed in the House of Commons if he can convince Conservative rebels to back him. I just think they will agree it in the end if the legislation is in place. There is arithmetic which says, well, the Boris Johnson can achieve the deal without the DUP if he convinces all, most of the Tories, which he stacked from the Tory party, and if he also convinces some Labour people who are in constituencies which voted to, um, to leave and which are, who are afraid that their voters will punish them if they don't support the Brexit deal. So there is some people have made that calculation, and that's from the Independent to the Times, so different um, newspapers to say, well, he might achieve that without the DOP. And that is also one of the reasons why the DOP is now so outraged, because they understand that they've lost influence. There's been talk of another Brexit referendum. Is that likely? This is really difficult to predict. Labour is wavering back and forth. <laughs> they change their position all the time, so I, I don't dare to predict this. But so far, they have said they first want a second referendum. They want a um, prolongation of the negotiation period, possibly longer than February, for a second referendum on the deal, which is now on the table. And then after that, they want a new election. Might the EU give sufficient extension to allow the possibility of another Brexit referendum? I think they wouldn't support any extension which allows the UK to boycott the new budget of the EU, and that means by end of June everything has to be done. 
For those from Northern Ireland like Langhammer, what's most important is political autonomy. To him, this means calling for a referendum to reunify with the Republic of Ireland and become one country and remain in the EU. Me personally, I voted to kick England out of the EU. Northern Ireland was set up 97 years ago. Uh, we still effectively don't have the vote. We, we are not part of the British franchise. We are not allowed to vote for the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, the two main parties. So the two main parties don't seek a mandate to, to, to govern here, but they do govern nonetheless. It's, it's a quasi-colonial situation. Uh, I saw this as a brilliant opportunity because uh, the inevitable result of a, of a Brexit was going to be Scottish referendum and Northern Irish referendum. A major event like Brexit could trigger a call for reunification. This option is provided for by the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement, part of the peace deal signed in 1998 to acknowledge any legitimate desire to unite Ireland. What's the likelihood of a reunification referendum, we ask Sheik at Queen's University. All opinion polls say that in the case of a no-deal Brexit, the people of Northern Ireland would prefer a referendum. In that case, the Secretary of State should call a referendum. However, it's his discretion, and I think it's quite unlikely that they actually do this. Even if Northern Ireland wants a reunification, the Republic of Ireland has to agree to it under the Good Friday Agreement. Sheik believes the odds might not be high. There are some people in Ireland who think that Northern Ireland receives a large support bill every year from the UK and that they will have to step up for this. And, and then, of course, as if they see now how the DUP behaves and how people in Northern Ireland still have um, some violence going on, that would be another disadvantage, which make people in Ireland think twice whether they want reunification. On Spotlight today, we examine Brexit and its broader implications. Stay tuned for more. Today's spotlight is on Brexit. UK's Department for Exiting the EU estimates that UK could lose as much as £130 billion sterling in lost GDP growth over the next 15 years if Boris Johnson's deal goes through. This makes people on average poorer by about £2,250 sterling a year by 2034, said to be more costly than the proposal by former Prime Minister Theresa May. We ask Professor Geoffrey Williams at Elm Business School, Help University, on why he is a lever. As former Deputy Chairman of the EU-Malaysia Chamber of Commerce and Industry, he has unique insights about the EU. The main reason is, was one of sovereignty. We found that actually the European Union is encroaching more and more in decisions that are being made in, inside the United Kingdom toward the United States of Europe. But we had envisaged that it would be primarily involved in economics and trade. But now we're finding that the European Union involves itself in ways in, you know, in terms of the contracts between employers and employees. But outside of that, they are also involving themselves in issues of human rights, which uh, have an effect on our ability to deal with people that we consider to be dangerous people within our community, but who would find protection for what, uh, what they're doing somehow through an appeal to uh, European courts. Given what has been decided at the House of Commons over the last few days, what is William's preferred outcome? My preferred outcome is that we leave on the 31st of October. My real preference was that we should have left much earlier. We should have left at least in, at the end of May, if not before that. The question as to whether we leave with a deal or without a deal, frankly, I don't care. Let's say we leave on the 31st of October. Then on the 1st of November, nothing uh, will have changed in any real substantive we will still have sim similar um, trading arrangements, similar tariffs. A lot of investment has been made 
in ensuring that goods and services cross the border normally. We spent a lot of time trying to make sure that there would be as little disruption as possible. We had three years to prepare for that. And a lot of investment has been put into that, both sides, the Europeans as well as the uh, United Kingdom. And I think that the European Union are not vindictive in their view about how they want to create a future trading arrangement with the, the United Kingdom. I think that they want an open trading arrangement with low tariffs, no quotas, as few restrictions as possible. They definitely want it. And the fact is, we have that now. It's a bit like when they introduced the euro, everybody said it will be chaos. Actually, it wasn't chaos. So I think we will see the same thing again. I think the day after we leave, there will be a lot of reconciliation and a sort of an acceptance that it's happened. And everybody will forgive each other and we will all move on. In his estimate, what are the implications of Brexit? I mean, you may see movements in the market in terms of exchange rates and so on. But frankly, I think that all of that is probably already been factored in to the financial markets um, because we have had such a long period of discussing these issues. And even though this week and next week are likely to be a little uncertain, nonetheless, the markets are sort of taking that all into account. And they have bigger things to worry about, actually, in terms of um, international financial flows. In, in, In the long term, it does open up prospects for the United Kingdom to trade more with Asia and to trade more freely with Asia, because we will be able to establish our own free trade agreement. EU-Malaysia free trade agreement, for example, which has been on the agenda for many, many years, is going nowhere. The United Kingdom would be very uh, quick in approaching Malaysia to um, approve a free trade agreement. UK is among Malaysia's top 10 foreign direct investors with cumulative investments of about 22 billion ringgit in 2018. Edward Clayton, a partner at PwC's strategy and consulting team based in Kuala Lumpur, talks about areas that Malaysia could work more closely with the UK. have got a lot in common. Uh, for example, both great trading nations, strong in areas, business areas such as education uh, and financial services where we could do a lot more together. So uh, if I were... In the Malaysian government right now, I'd be thinking very hard about how I could take advantage of the situation in order to strengthen the bilateral ties between the two countries. Nevertheless, the Remainers are probably the most frustrated about Brexit. Clayton, the Remainer, describes how he feels about UK leaving the EU. The challenge I see right now, and this is, we've almost got Brexit fatigue. (laughs) People want to be out of this interminable stalemate, which we've been in now. Um, uh, And it's Clearly not good for business, not good for investment, for this to carry on. It's been fantastic for those of us who are educating children in the UK because the balance has been much, much lower. Uh, But clearly, uh, a lot of businesses are uh, thinking about investing in other parts of Europe rather than the UK. And there will be uh, a significant negative effect if this continues. So coming out of uncertainty is going to be very important. Uh, Which side that lands on? I have a clear preference for staying in the EU, but it's very hard to see how that's going to be possible anymore. How optimistic is Clayton about the future of the UK post-Brexit? I have to be. (laughs) That's a bit. Uh, But uh, the only optimism I have is is perhaps the optimism of looking in the past over the many, many centuries, actually, uh, where UK politicians have from time to time done very odd and strange things. 
and yet uh, somehow creatively uh, good things or positive things for the country have come out of them. And uh, we've seen many examples in the past, perhaps going even as far back as the dissolution of the monasteries when the King Henry VIII turned the economy upside down. Uh, and yet that actually reinvigorated the British economy despite all the pain uh, that it caused at the time. So uh, very illogical step back then, but resulted in Britain becoming a much, much stronger economy and country as a result. Right now, it's hard to see how Brexit is going to achieve that. But time and time again, we've seen that uh, good things have emerged from perhaps a reset uh, of the political system and the political status quo which a country was in. Brexit does happen, but this reset will catalyze a lot of fresh thinking uh, and that will bring a positive result, even though we can't quite see what it is right now. For property developers like Chan Yuming, Executive Director of Benprop, the London unit of Benetton Properties Group Malaysia, says the keyword has been uncertainty. But properties in London continue to be sought after by foreigners from less stable markets. We are keeping the powder dry in terms of you know, immediate investments uh, for the near future. We have been um, still actively uh, developing as well as investing. Um, even during the Brexit period uh, from a couple of years ago. We have seen still some, a silver lining, in a sense, in that um, there's currency advantage from certain sectors abroad outside of the UK to look towards investing within the UK now at this period. As a group, we have interest in a central London development, which uh, quite recently went out to Hong Kong for off-plan sales and we saw a healthy 40% um, reservations. Malaysian institutional investors like PNB and EPF have added commercial properties such as those in the Battersea project into their London portfolio. EPF's CEO, Tunku Ali Zakri Alias, was quoted to say he has been finalising deals in the UK and believes London is resilient. As for individual buyers from Malaysia, Chan of Van Prop says there are always opportunities. The capital spending power of the Malaysian market is uh, lower than, say, your Singaporean buyer or your Hong Kong buyer. But that, in turn, has also um, seen London's development focus more on a lower price point product, more sort of £800 per square foot product being developed um, in the sort of fringe of central London. And that's kind of opened up a bit more to, you know, a market like Malaysia, who still see very good value in this city, uh, very good future value for, say, the education uh, of their children or the next generation. And, and some see it as a long-term investment. Get it right, the capital value gained uh, from the uh, growth in value of the property could effectively, you know, fund one's children's education. UK continues to be a magnet for the wealthy, where they can send their children to some of the finest schools in the world. Despite Brexit, Chan remains optimistic about London, keeping its status as a preeminent global city. Out of one of four global cities, it's one of two English-speaking ones, which is still, you know, the sort of unifying language of the world and the business world. It's a free and not a fairly restrictive market for investments. So it's, it's quite a fair economy. Education is still uh, a major factor for a lot of 
investors or, or end users in property from the Asian territories coming here for higher education purposes and in turn may end up investing in properties here. Now, don't get me wrong, um, there are corporate groups that have obviously taken a bit of a conservative stance in terms of future investments in London, but I still see, I still have a lot of confidence in the city and you know, its sort of business market. My personal stance is I'd rather we get on with it. Everyone can pick themselves up and plan ahead for the future. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see something happen on the 31st. The process to achieve Brexit has been long and frustrating, in part due to the wheels of parliamentary democracy that allows for dissenting voices to be heard and allows for checks and balances. In upholding this tradition, UK reaffirms itself as one of the most advanced economies in the world. Williams at Help University has this to say. Well, I think what you're seeing is a real lesson in how democracies should work. Whether you're a leaver like myself, a Brexiteer, or whether you are a Remainer, the fact is everybody has been given every opportunity to have their say and to have their views tested either in Parliament or in the referendum to begin with, or even in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court. And this means that every pillar of our government has been actively involved in this process. There has been a very forensic analysis of what is likely to happen, what are the implications, and everybody has been given an open opportunity to follow due process. And that's how it should be. Nobody imagined it would be a simple thing because there were very deeply held views on both sides. Those people who want to remain, although I disagree with them, I do understand that they passionately believe that the United Kingdom benefits from being a member of the European Union. I disagree with that, but I understand that they passionately agree with it. And they have a right to express their view and to do within law what is available to them to ensure that their rights are respected. But they don't have a right to block the decision of the referendum taken in 2016. That decision was very clear. The British people voted to leave, and we must leave, finally, on the 31st of October. And that wraps up our coverage on Brexit today. I'm Noelle Lim on Spotlight, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.